There's a, you, you don't get to see what's up here, but uh, there was a subtle hint when I arrived this morning. There's a kitchen timer. And uh, yeah, I know, I know. And, and, you'll know, and it counts down. And the, the number is five minutes. So I don't think that's going to happen. So we'll, 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 see how we get, we'll see how we get on uh, this morning. Um, I, I just want to say, you know, this is a fantastic building, a beautiful building that we're in. And I, I really appreciate just how wonderful and clean our toilets are here. Uh, they're, they're gorgeous. I could spend ages in there. Um, but uh, I, I went before the service. I, I won't tell you any more detail than that part. But afterwards, I went to wash my hands and then uh, I went to use the hand dryer. So I'm standing there opposite the, the wall with my hands under this thing, and it's not working. I'm looking at, looking, where's the buttons? So I'm waving my hands, and then I realize it's a paper towel dispenser, <laughs> not a hand dryer. And I'm rapidly looking to the door, hoping that nobody's going to come in and see what I'm doing. So thank goodness for that. Nobody knows. So there we go. We're, we're okay. Uh, so, this morning, have we got our slides, guys? We'll, we will get there. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 14. And uh, this is the uh, next in our series, uh, based on Fred's uh, material from the EA, What Kind of Follower? Uh, in previous week, we, we've looked at the invitation, the community, and today we're going to be thinking about the cost, uh, the cost of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus. So we're going to read uh, from Luke uh, chapter 14, verse 25 through to 35. Now, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross, and follow me, cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying the person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war with another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have, cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for soil nor for manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So this morning, um, I've decided to uh, make my, all my main points based on the names of television programs. So I'll just keep you sort of wide awake and, and following, and you can try and anticipate where I'm headed. And uh, the first one is The Apprentice. I don't, has anybody been watching The Apprentice, this series? Uh, some of you have probably watched it in a previous series and just got fed up of the whole thing. 
I, I have no idea how such a bunch of Dylans managed to get anywhere in business. It's, uh, it's mad. But then I, I remind myself they've probably chosen these people deliberately because it makes good TV. Um, but it does help you feel rather sort of, especially in your older age, a bit more sort of self-righteous, I guess, thinking, I would never have done that. That's not what I would do. Uh, but of course, we all had uh, our younger years and nobody's parading our mistakes all over primetime TV. Anyway, the idea of the apprentice is, is very helpful for the message this morning because essentially what Jesus is talking about here is disciples. He's talking about the idea of disciples, of discipleship uh, and followers of Jesus. Now, the, the idea of disciples was common in Jesus' day. Rabbis, Jewish rabbis or teachers were, had their own followers. But this word that means disciples had more of a sort, I guess, a sort of technical meaning than that. Because it wasn't just about following somebody. I mean, you can follow people online these days, you know, on social media. You follow them, see their latest tweets. If any of you have been following Gary Lineker, you'll have been realizing what's the biggest news of the week. But following in Jesus' day meant more than that. Because followers, disciples literally physically followed their rabbi and teacher around. But more than that, they, they started to imitate their lives and lifestyles. They would talk like them. They would say the things they say. They would live like them, do the things they do, and uh, go the, the places that they would go. It was a full-time commitment to be a disciple, an apprentice in a way, a trainee. Jesus says here, or it says here uh, in Luke, that large crowds were traveling with Jesus at this particular point. So you might remember that Jesus has just told the parable of the wedding banquet, and there he's speaking about God's invitation. He's, he's imp- inviting people to come and follow. And yet immediately after that, as the crowds start to gather, he decides to spell out to them the cost of being one of his disciples. Now, we live in an age where we've got seeker-friendly churches, and we're doing everything we can to try and make it easy for non-Christians to come to church, for people to learn and hear about Jesus. And in many ways, what we do is we try and do a lot of sort of positive PR. But it seems here, in, in a bit of a shock, that Jesus is doing the opposite. He's actually trying to put people off becoming followers, not encourage them to do it. The invitation to follow Jesus is free. It's all of grace. But the lifestyle, Jesus says, will cost us our old way of life. Now, the verses he says here in verse 26 are are probably ones I've had more people over my years as a pastor ask me about than any other. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father, mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, Such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, probably many of us will have come across cults where people have got involved in a cult and then completely cut their family off and will not see them again, will not talk to them. Now, I just want to say to you that that is not what Jesus is saying here. He's deliberately using hyperbole, exaggerated language, in order to make a point. And one of the things probably that's missing is is a key understanding of part of that culture. But it's a part of many cultures today. And it's this phrase, filial piety. It's the idea of absolute commitment and respect to your elders, particularly to your parents, 
but definitely to the wider family. And you honor them and commit yourself to them. Now, you might remember there's a story elsewhere in the Gospels where Jesus invites people and uh, one of the men responds to him and says, uh, Lord, first, let me go and bury my father. And when we read that, we think, oh, well, clearly the guy is on his way to his dad's funeral. So he's just asking for, can you give me a few hours and then I'll follow. But actually, that is not what's happening. This is an example of filial piety. He's basically saying, look, Lord, you know, I've got my family to consider. My my dad's old. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll wait till my dad has died someday and then I'll become your follower. And so that was the cultural value of the day. And what Jesus is saying is he's completely overriding that. And when he says, therefore, that anyone comes to me, does not hate their father, mother, the families, etc. He's saying, if you use your family as an excuse, your commitment to them as an excuse not to follow me, then you just can't be my disciple. I'm sorry. Wow, it's powerful, isn't it? The powerful, powerful truth. A serious message of the cost of following Jesus. Now, I normally try and slide a film in. You're wondering when I was going to slide one in, and this is where it comes in. I don't know if any of you have seen this movie. It's called Silence from 2016. A very famous movie director, Martin Scorsese, makes lots of sort of gangster movies, but every so often he makes something a little bit different. And this is a film about Jesuit priests in 17th century Japan. And they go to Japan to preach the gospel and to bring Jesus to the people, the villagers of Japan. Unfortunately, uh, what happens to them is uh, pretty grim. And many of the missionaries are either crucified, there's a picture of a scene here, they're crucified by the sea as the tide comes in and many of the missions, missionaries are beheaded. So it's a, it's a pretty tough story. If you want to see something which is really, really powerful about taking the message of Jesus uh, to another part of the world and it costing your life, then, then this is it. The cost of following Jesus. Jesus says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. And that was literally true for these missionaries back then in the 1600s. I suppose one of the things that I really think about is today is that there's a real difference or contrast between what I would call cozy discipleship and costly discipleship. We today live in a what I would call a painkiller culture. Uh, We want to anesthetize ourselves to pain, not just physical pain, but emotional pain. We want to feel good all the time. We want to feel happy. We want to feel cozy. And therefore, we will follow all of those experiences that make us feel like that. And that means, therefore, that we avoid discomfort. We anesthetize ourselves very much to pain. There's a famous book uh, called The Gift of Pain by Paul Brand, who was an American orthopedic surgeon. He was a committed Christian, and he worked with leprosy patients. And uh, he was the person that discovered that the real damage of leprosy is not in the condition itself and what it does to the skin. It's the fact that leprosy deadens the nerve endings so that you can no longer feel pain. And as a result of not feeling pain, it means you can get all sorts of cuts 
it bruises injuries which then become infected and you don't feel it. And so he wrote this book, The Gift of Pain, to explain that even pain itself is one of God's gifts to us. It's a part of a living a healthy life. And one of the things I guess I would want to say today as a challenge to us is that I think that Western Christianity, in a way, is suffering from a spiritual leprosy. In other words, we don't want to feel the pain. We don't want to go to the uncomfortable places. But you know, the problem with that is, is that when we anesthetize ourselves to emotional and spiritual pain, we become immune to the pain of others. That means that we can watch things on TV and not have them touch us at all. We might feel some level of compassion, but it stays on the surface and it doesn't go deep. The way of Jesus is not just to follow, but it is to take up your cross and to follow him. Now, you know, when we read those words today, I think that we have completely missed the shock effect that those would have had on the first century hearers when Jesus first said them. Today, we are so familiar that we're with the cross that we've sanitized the offense of it. And so we fail to receive Jesus' words with the same slap in the face that they would have delivered when he first spoke them to the crowds that were so eager to follow him. Let me remind you, the cross was a Roman instrument of terror. It was used by the Roman authorities to control large populations through the power of fear. It, it was horrific. And yet Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, in fact, the Messiah, the king of the Jews, what does he do? He doesn't pick something from his own faith. He picks something from an enemy occupier and draws it in and says that this needs to be part of what it means to follow me. You're going to have to take up that cross, that fear that's used against you. Become familiar with it. Bear it every single day as you follow me. So to our persecutors, we might say, you've got a cross you want me to carry. That's okay. I've got one already. I carry my cross everywhere I go every day. We'll crucify you, they might say to us one day. And I'll say you can't. I have already been crucified with Christ. Paul writes in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It takes away the power of all oppressors and persecutors that they have over you. It takes away the power of fear. When I carry the cross with me, the worst thing that could possibly happen to me is there on my shoulders, and I have nothing left to fear. So I will follow Jesus, no matter what they say to me or what they do to me. Some of you might have uh, watched in the past Steven Spielberg's a mega series called Band of Brothers. Um, it's, an, it's absolutely brilliant. I would thoroughly recommend you watch it. It's about um, United States 101st Airborne troops uh, who are parachuted uh, down behind uh, enemy German lines um, on D-Day in World War II. And it's about what happens to them. 
There's a scene in one of the early episodes where Private Blythe is dug into a foxhole in the ground uh, near a hedgerow. The Germans are not very far away, and he's hiding there. And he gets into a conversation with one of the commanding officers, Captain Spears. And he discloses to to Spears that on D-Day, when they landed and they parachuted, he got separated from his friends. And so what he did was he hid in a ditch, and he stayed there for several hours and did not come out because he was terrified. And he discloses this to Spears, and Spears is this like mighty courageous guy who goes running across the fields in front of anybody, irrespective of the gunfire. So his commanding officer replies, and he says this. He says, we are all scared. He says, You're, I'm scared. I feel the same fear you do when you're hiding there. He says this, you hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope for you living your life. The only hope, though, that you have is to accept the fact that you are already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. Or war depends on it. And it's a powerful phrase. Essentially, what he's saying is we can't afford to let the fear overcome our work and our mission as soldiers. So I just accept the fact I'm dead and that sets me free to do the job. And in a sense, what Jesus is saying is something similar. He's saying, if you have been crucified there on the cross with me, if you carry that cross every day, the worst thing, the worst persecution that could ever happen to you, then you are free to now follow me unconditionally. I guess one of the things that's raised by the passage, though, is um, whose choice is it to be a disciple? Jesus was faced with large crowds and many people were choosing to become or to be disciples. But Jesus was trying to put them off. And he said, you, you can't be my disciple. That's a strange thing to say. Imagine Ian next Sunday standing at the front and pointing to a few people. Sorry, you, you know, you can't follow Jesus. No, no, no. You're not qualified. No. And, and we're going like, Ian, what are you doing? Stop this. You know, we're supposed to be trying to let people come in the first place. There's four ways you can approach what Jesus says here. First one is from the point of view of liberty. Jesus is not permitting somebody. It's almost like there's a selection process. He says, sorry, I'm I'm not allowing you to be a disciple. The second way is a sort of quality control. Jesus saying, I'm afraid you don't have what it takes. The third way is sort of authenticity. Jesus saying, I'm sorry, but you're not a real disciple. You're You're not the genuine thing. Now, I don't know how many people here watch Antiques Roadshow. Uh, I never used to watch Antiques Roadshow. I just thought that was for old people. Um, and, and, and of course, now I'm not really that old, but I, I do watch it every so often, and it's fascinating. I think all of us like the idea that we've got something hidden in our loft, uh, buried in a sideboard somewhere that we want to haul out, and suddenly discover this amazing news that it's the rarest thing on earth. However, sometimes it goes the opposite way. And I remember this particular episode where a lady had brought in her prize Chinese Ming Dynasty vase. And she was like, oh, this is amazing. I've looked after this thing. It's not, it's not got a crack in the glaze or anything. Carefully places it. And I don't know about you, but they put, them, they put these really expensive things on a really narrow pedestal. And you're thinking, if that falls off, if that guy drops that, we're in massive trouble. So she's there waiting to find out just 
how valuable this Ming vase is. And unfortunately, the expert says, um, I, I, don't, I don't know if you realize, but this is actually a fake. This is not the real thing. This is, this is like 250 years out. And, and the sort of shock and the disappointment. And, and in a way, you know, Jesus could be taken here to say, you know, sometimes there, there are actually fake disciples. That they're people who look like they're genuine followers, but aren't actually the real thing. Authenticity. And then the final way you can interpret it is, is in terms of capability. Jesus saying to people, I'm sorry, but you have not got the ability to sustain being a disciple. Uh, we've got a, a lazy boy city at home with electric recliners. It's about 14 years old. It's wonderful. And whenever I'm watching a movie, the recliner comes up. Anyway, this week we were watching a movie and the recliner stopped working. And now it is locked in a fully open position, almost horizontal. So if I want to sit there, I have to lie there looking at the ceiling like this. And uh, you can't even push it in. Why? Because the power unit is dead. You know, it, it, I mean, it's, it looks like a settee. It works normally like a settee, but it is not doing its job like a settee anymore. And of course, we're going to get somebody in to repair it. But in a way, Jesus is looking at some of the people and saying, you're like that. Your power unit is dead. You don't have the capability to sustain being a disciple. Now, the main thing that overturns each of these rejections of people coming along to be disciples is this. It's not just having a willingness to follow Jesus. That is wonderful. But it's the will and the action to take up your cross every day of your life. To walk the path that Jesus walked, that costly life. Now, I don't know um, if you can remember a time when you were offered a job. You've gone for a job, a job interview, and then somebody rings you back and they said, well, congratulations, we'd like to offer you the job. Now, that's wonderful, but sometimes people get that call and they sort of, there's a sort of deep gulp. And you think, oh my goodness, I didn't actually think I was going to get offered the job. And, and now you suddenly realize, well, there's a cost. Oh, I, my family's going to have to move 200 miles away. Uh, I'm going to leave all my family and friends behind. And suddenly you're sitting there thinking about the consequences and the implications. And so some people do go away and say, well, can you give me a day to think about it and to come back? And in a sense, that's what's happening here. You know, there are disciples who are enthusiastic initially, but Jesus is saying to them, you're going to have to have a really serious think about whether this is what you want to do, because things are going to have to change in our life. So what, what's our message to new apprentices, I guess? What gospel are we preaching? So are we saying to new apprentices, new disciples, come to Jesus and be happy? Well, maybe, and that is actually True, Jesus says in, the, in the, the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those, blessed are those. That word there means happy. Happy are those. Even says happy are those who are persecuted. But really, Jesus' message here is this. Come to Jesus and not be happy. Come to Jesus and be crucified. Come to Jesus and carry your cross daily. One of the things perhaps we have forgotten in the Western church 
is that if you became a Christian in the first century, persecution was the norm. And we sense that persecution today, but we have lived much of our lives free of it. But now we're realizing that there are real serious implications. Jesus says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? So we're moving past the apprentice here. And we're going on to one of my favorite programs, Grand Designs. Anybody here ever watch Grand Designs? Some of you? Yeah, yeah, there's a few there. Uh, I, I have to say, I love watching this. This is one of my favorite buildings, by the way. You can't get a mortgage for it. It is made out of a shipping container. This is a, a guy in Northern Ireland who's an architect. He got an old shipping container. Two, in fact, two of them. Put them over, one crossed over. Watch the program. It's really interesting. Anyway, there you go. Apparently, you can't get a mortgage for one. They're not the right sort of material. Anyway, we won't go into that. Um, so grand designs. Kevin McLeod every week takes you through a, a new building project, some ambitious plan. People who've got just about enough money and they're really, really optimistic and they say, yeah, we, we've got a little bit of contingency funds, but I'm sure it'll be fine. And is it fine? No, it's never fine. And, and you go through the up and down and the ordeal of them making these amazing houses. And so one of the things I just want to say to you to start with is, and I think we all know this, but God has grand designs for our life. Amazing plans. I mean, when you look at the plans, it's incredible. Many of you have probably at some point received a card from somebody which quotes from uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And it's like, it's wonderful when you get a card that says that, isn't it? Or somebody sends it in a text message. One of the things you may need, and it's just a reminder, God didn't say that just to ordinary everyday people as, as an idea to sort of get them to come and be followers. God sent that message to God's failed people who were in exile in Babylon. This is to the exile after, after the Babylonians had invaded Israel. They destroyed the temple and they took all of the Jews away to slavery. While they were there in slavery, having completely lost everything they had, in that darkest place, God said, I know the plans I have for you. These are words of hope, folks. That no matter how much you failed, no matter what dark place you have gone to, no matter how abandoned you feel by God, God is saying, I have got grand designs for your life. And they are good and they're going to bring hope for you. Now, those are words that we can speak to, to, to unbelievers. And that's absolutely wonderful and beautiful because it's true. But the power of hope and recovery for those of us who have been disciples of Jesus and then gone and messed it up and blown it big time. It's incredible to know that God still has grand designs to get our lives in place. But essentially here, Jesus is saying we need to pay careful consideration if we're going to become followers. Don't just walk forward at the, you know, in a real high emotional point of a service and give your life to Jesus without thinking about the implications. He says you're going to have to sit down. He says you're going to have to get your you know, estimates out, work out how much all the materials are going to cost, and then whether you've got enough to be able to get the thing finished in the end. 
He then goes on and he says this. He says, for if you lay a foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone will see it and they will ridicule you saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Now there's a little picture uh, up there uh, from Twitter. It says, Twitter reacts to the saddest ever episode of Grand Designs. I'll show you why it was the saddest uh, just in one moment. Uh, But before we get to that, the third TV program we've got is Mastermind. Of course, the famous uh, quote, uh, I've started so I'll finish, that comes in at the end. And uh, essentially what Jesus is saying is, I don't just want people who are going to be great at the beginning of their following of me. I want people to be able to get the way all through the end and to finish the project. And uh, this is a picture from one of the Grand Designs episodes. This uh, was published in the Daily Mail in 2019. It was the saddest ever episode of Grand Designs. Uh, A man with a lifelong dream of building a lighthouse has revealed he's been left in the debt of almost four million pound and uh, that's ruined his marriage for the sake of the project. uh, Him and his wife broke up and the building was unfinished. That's what a tragedy that is, isn't it? Just look, imagine that just sat there and what it says to everybody who drives past. They had a plan. They started, but they could not finish. Many people over the years will choose to become Christians, but will end up looking just like that, like partly built abandoned houses because they've not had the ability to keep following Jesus through not just the highs, but also the lows. Jesus' focus here is not on becoming a follower of Jesus, but on being a finisher with Jesus. He doesn't say, just follow me. He says, the journey ahead is going to be difficult. If you follow me, it's going to be tough. And I really want you to think about whether you're going to make it with me at all. And of course, that brings in the whole idea as Christians of perseverance and endurance. There's a theological uh, idea that talks about the perseverance of the saints. It's that once we are saved uh, by the grace of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus, that we keep that walk up and we keep walking with him. In uh, the book of Hebrews, The writer to the Hebrews uses the imagery, not of walking, but of running. He says, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. And then in verse three, he says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer to the Hebrews recognizes that being a follower of Jesus, at times we may grow weary and lose heart. I have met many Christians who are just exhausted. They're wiped out. They're disillusioned. Many of them have been sort of really at the top of their game for for Christ and in the church for years and years. And we'll read about them. Some of them will be famous people that we know are Christians and we read about them in the paper. And it seems they've just walked away from Jesus. It It is entirely possible that we become weary and lose heart. But the writer to the Hebrews says... What we need to do in circumstances like this is keep our eyes on the one we are following, which is Jesus. If we start looking around at the world around us and all of the things that we've sacrificed or given up or lost, it is easy for the enemy to then drag us down 
to be worn out. The writer to the Hebrews says that we do this by fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That word perfecter or perfect, uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. It's like we interpret that very often as moral perfection. I think, my goodness me, what a standard. But that word perfect, teleos, means to be complete or finished. Okay, so what God is saying there is that God wants to bring that work of, of holiness uh, and making us into the image of Jesus. He wants to bring it to completion. There on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. It's the same word. Perfect. I've done it. I completed the task that the Father gave to me. And God wants to do the same for us if we would keep our eyes fixed on him. It's interesting because he says we should keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. But then he talks about what Jesus has got his eyes fixed on. And he says this, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the father. He says for the joy set before him. Sometimes, you know, we are in situations which are dark and difficult and tough where we're weary and tired. And when we look at just this bit, there isn't a lot to encourage us. What it says here is that even when Jesus was there on the cross, his eyes were not fixed on the pain of what he was going through, but they were fixed on the joy that was ahead. The hope and the plan and the purpose of God bringing billions of people through time into the kingdom of God. His eyes were fixed on you and me when he was on the cross. The joy that was set before him of seeing our lives saved from sin and transformed. Folks, sometimes when we are disciples of Jesus in those tough times, it's then that we need to have our eyes fixed on him. And we need to realize the power of the hope that we have. A new heaven and a new earth. We are new creations. The old has gone and the new has come. So it's not how we start. Maybe with a spectacular conversion, it's really ultimately about how we finish. Now, the fourth and the final TV program we've got here is Undercover Boss. This is perhaps not as well seen. Has anybody here watched Undercover Boss? Oh, hey, that's surprising. You can actually watch clips of this on YouTube. It's really interesting. The premise is this. The boss or chief executive of a company gets into a disguise Uh, gives himself a new name, an alias, and gets a job on the ground floor uh, there in the business, and he spends several weeks doing it. Uh, What they also conspire to have is a film crew who completely separately, apparently, are coming in to make a documentary about the organization. Now, of course, the undercover boss then gets to see what's really going on in his company and sees what people are really like behind the scenes instead of just what the what they say to him face to face. So it's really interesting. However, the bit we're all interested in is when he reveals his true identity. And that's the scary bit. At the end of the time, the undercover boss reveals their true identity and he rewards some of the really hard-working employees. Some employees, he puts them on training and says, you need, some, you, know, you need to adjust and change the way you're doing things. And then, yes... Ouch, 
some people are fired. Scary. No, he says, no, I'm not having this. This is not what you are to be. Now, in some ways, Jesus is the undercover boss. Remember the words of Charles Wesley in Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. God has come down to earth in human flesh. Not everybody realized who he was, the undercover boss. And if you listen to a lot of Jesus' parables, the the, the parables are about an undercover boss who comes along and how he gets treated. Jesus is essentially here talking in the same way. He says there, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him? And this is the key bit. If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Jesus is saying here, taking on this role of undercover boss, he's essentially saying that, You know, when you realize who I am and the power I have, you yourselves will need to carefully consider whether you want to carry on living your life the old way or whether you're going to come and make terms of peace with me. A surrender to God unconditionally. We are called to take up our cross daily. What does that mean? Well, Jesus says the same, way, same thing in a slightly different way. Verse 33. He says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. You might remember the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and asks him, what more do I need to do uh, to be saved? And Jesus tells him to sell everything he has, give it to the poor, and then come follow him. And of course, the really, really difficult words there, it tells us that the rich young ruler walked away sad because he had much wealth. He, he calculated and he wasn't willing to surrender all of that to become a follower of Jesus. Well, what happens in that circumstance then? And these are really, can I just say, I mean, these are really tough words. Um, this, these are words that we'd really like to skip over. Jesus says this, he says, salt's good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salt again? It's not fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile just to be thrown out, to be disposed of, thrown on the rubbish tip. That's a really difficult thing to hear, isn't it? And Jesus is saying, you know, there is a day coming when he will make a division between those who have come to him and been saved and sanctified and faithfully followed, and those others that have not. Some who have started but not finished, and many who never chose to in the beginning. You know, those uh, final scene of The Apprentice at each episode, and you're, you're sitting there with the final three, and you're thinking, which one of these is going to go? And, uh, and he picks one of them out. He says, I'm sorry, but you're fired. You've gone. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. He's saying in a really scary way, you know, some will get fired. You find those words literally being used in John 15. What Jesus says to his followers is this. He says, remain in me. In other words, don't just stop. Carry on and and finish the race. Remain in me, he says, and I'm going to remain in you. Verse 6, but if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up thrown into the fire 
and burned. My goodness me, serious, serious words. The reality is here, the reason why this is so important is because the cost here is the cross itself. Jesus' invitation when he asks us to follow him and become his disciples is an invitation to come and die. For our old lives to be gone and left behind, sacrificed and surrendered to him. And then we raised up to a new life, resurrected with Jesus. You know, we're going to have a baptism in a few weeks' time. And when people go down into the water, one of the things that's an image of is being buried with Christ in the grave. And when you come up, being raised with Christ in the grave. I, um, the, I don't know if you noticed, there's a motorcycle event going on just down here this morning. I had a guy in my church in Preston who used to ride his gigantic Honda Goldwing. He'd turn up in all of his leathers, embroidered patterns. And uh, he came along and he got saved. And um, we got him baptized. And, and he said, he said I, I want to stay down for quite a long time. And we, you know, in, under the water. He said, I want you to hold me down for like about 10 seconds. Now, we normally we just dip them, count to two, bring them back up. I don't know whether you have a, a similar way, but he wanted us. So we did it. Uh, and he just said, I, I, he said, while I am down there, I really want to absorb the fact that I, uh, my old life is gone. It's gone. It's behind me. I am dead. And when I come up, I am a new person in him. And so we held him down and we didn't know what he was going to do. He came up, 10 seconds, you come up, you think he's, we're drowning the poor guy. Uh, but we brought him up and as he came up, he punched Thank goodness I have got quick reactions. He didn't punch me. But he came up out of the water like this. It was like in some action movie in the water in slow motion going around. He goes, yes, like this, a new life in Christ. I'll never forget it, you know, and, and, and that's the sort of imagery that Jesus comes here. Folks, this isn't to make you miserable. It's to make you realistic. Jesus, if you are carrying your cross, he wants you to know, don't worry about it because he's the one carrying you. You are not alone. It's not your strength. It's not your power, but it is your decision. We have to make a calculated decision. How am I going to finish, finish off a message like this, which in many ways sounds sound so tough that we could take and walk away and we could even feel miserable about it? I want to read to you the words of Paul from 2 Timothy 4. This is Paul reflecting very, very near the end of his life. And he says this, the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, also to all of you who long for his appearing. Folks, fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. Carry that cross. 